Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. I want to ask you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter. And we're going to trace through, just for a moment, 1 and 2 Peter, where uh, the Apostle Peter is writing to the people and talking about the importance of the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God and why it is important. And uh, Peter is emphasizing to the church, to those that he's writing to about the necessity of Scripture. And of course, obviously, uh, Peter refers to the fact in one point that the writings of Paul, he considered Scripture. But primarily, he's talking about uh, the Old Testament writings. Uh, The Gospel of uh, Mark would have been written by this time. Uh, probably the Gospel of Matthew might have been written by this time. Uh, some of the other books would not have been. But First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. In other words, studying the Bible and living out the Christian life involves the mind. You don't go into neutral when you're talking about the Word of God and what God has called us to do. Verse 25. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. That's a reminder to us that God's word is timeless. It's not dated. It wasn't valid until we became enlightened or until certain technological revolutions took place. It is a valid word from God. Verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that it, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the pure milk of the word, like newborn babies, like a baby immediately out of its mother's womb that needs nurturing and pacifying and needs the assurance that things are okay. You go after God like that. Chapter, uh, second Peter, second Peter chapter one, second Peter chapter one and verse four. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So God defines his promises as precious. They are precious. When you get a promise that you can hold on to, it's a precious thing to you, especially in times of trial. His magnificent promises are incredible that God would make us the promises that he makes. Verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And have been established in the truth which is present with you. There is a purpose in repetition. It's not like, well, I studied that book in 1975 and I don't need to study that book anymore. He he said, you already know these things, but you need to remember them. You need to recall them. I, I was talking to a friend yesterday and... And I was, he has asked, asked me what I was preaching on today. And so I told him, he said, well, you need to preach this. And in about a year or so, you need to come back and you need to preach it from a little different angle like they've never heard it before and don't have a clue what you're talking about. He said, you have to come back and repeat it. You have to come back and repeat it. Because he said, Michael, we do live in a biblically illiterate age. And you've got to help people learn how to study the Bible. Uh, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised tales cleverly devised tales. Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
But know this, first of all, that no prophecy, no prophecy, emphatic, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Chapter 3 and verse 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So look at what Peter does. Peter equates the same level of importance and authority with a commandment spoken by the prophets and the Lord and the apostles. So he is affirming the apostles' teaching. That's why there are no apostles today. Because apostles had to be, one, people who had seen the resurrected Christ. And nobody that is alive today or has been alive since the first century has ever seen the resurrected Christ. So when you see somebody who says, well, I'm an apostle, they're really not. Because they've not seen the resurrected Christ and they have not been given the direct teachings uh, from Jesus. So Howard Hendricks says there are three stages or attitudes toward Bible study. I love this. It's a great analogy. He says the first one is the castor oil stage. The castor oil stage. You do it because you know you're supposed to. All right, I'm supposed to study my Bible, but I don't like it. Uh, Secondly, the cereal stage. The cereal stage. It can be dry and uninteresting, but you know it's nourishing. You know it's good for you. You know, my, my doctor tells me that I need to be on a high-fiber diet. And so I go to Chick-fil-A as often as I can. Because <laughs> it, it just feels like that ought to be fiber, and it's good for me. So I, that's why I go. Uh, the peaches and cream stage. And that's when you're feasting on the Word of God. When, when the Word of God becomes great and it, it becomes something that you desire. I remember a guy years ago when I started in youth ministry, and, and uh, he said, when, you, when you're in youth ministry and, and you're talking to your kids about what you're going to do, always tell them that the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And so he said, what that means is, is they do Bible study before they do recreation. The, all the, in other words, you eat your meat and potatoes before you get the banana split. Or the peaches and cream. See, we live in a culture where everybody just wants to eat dessert. You know, we've all bought the line, well, give me the dessert. I may die before I get to the main course. And I want to make sure I've gotten dessert in. But the reality is you need the vegetables and you need the nutrients from good solid food. And then the dessert is just a bonus. And we've gotten it out of whack that we think that the dessert is the meal. And it's really not. So let's look at some defining terms to get us into the peaches and cream stage. And they're, they're there in your notes for you. Uh, terms regarding inspiration. Plenary means full or total. It means when God speaks on any subject in the scripture, he knows what he's saying. And in fact, if you read the Bible, you will discover that the Bible is very clear in teaching that the earth is not the center of the universe. That the earth revolves around the sun. I mean, it, it's clear. It's right there in the Bible. The earth, the earth is never called flat in the Bible. And for thousands of years, people had concepts about the earth because they didn't read the Bible. And the Bible is always, when there's astronomy, 
the Bible speaks accurately. When it's sociology, when it's science, when it's history, the Bible speaks accurately. When we were in Israel just a few weeks ago, and we went to Hazor, which is a city that Joshua burned, and you can go there. And this excavation is recent. It's only been done in the last few years. But you can go there and see the charred rocks that archaeologists say date back to the time of Joshua. And you can see the burns on the bricks, which archaeologists say. Now, we didn't know if Joshua really burned Hazor or just he was writing and trying to sound like he was a a stronger leader and greater general than he really was. And you go right there and you get right down on that B.C. level 3,000 years before Christ and you see the burned remains of Joshua burning the city. There's evidence. Archaeology is, somebody said archaeology is just one dirty dig after another, but really archaeology helps verify the validity of the scriptures and what God says is true. The verbal inspiration, the very words, not the thoughts, but the very words were inspired by God. Although it's not dictated, sometimes God did say, write this down word for word, but the very words that he inspired and the words that the writers used are inspired by God. Then it's inerrant and infallible. One of the things that I'm grateful for is when I came to this church, I did not have to fight a battle of inerrancy. My predecessor had already established the fact that this church was going to be built on the inerrant word of God. That battle had already been fought because when you settle the issue of inerrancy, you settle a lot of other issues in the life of a church. And so it made us healthy from that standpoint that we understood the authority of Scripture. Uh, Vance Havner said, any spiritual experience that's not Bible-based is not of God but of the devil. It may be spiritual, but it's the wrong spirit. It's infallible. Why is it infallible? Because God's infallible. God's never made a mistake. God's never said, oops. God's never said, sorry, didn't mean to do that. God's infallible, so his word is infallible. The terms regarding interpretation, hermeneutics. Now, I always think of Herman the Munster. Anytime you ever want to remember hermeneutics, just think of Herman, Herman Munster. Hermeneutics came from the, the background of this word is from the Greek, from the god Hermes, from Greek mythology. Hermes was the messenger in Greek mythology who delivered the messages from the gods that man could not understand so that they could understand it. And so we've taken that word and baptized it into the church and into, into Bible study, into theology, that hermeneutics is, is the science or the art by which the meaning of the biblical text is determined. So simply it means the application of reason and how to interpret the actual intended meaning of a passage. I love the quote that is in your notes, and you ought to learn that quote. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. I mean, don't say, well, you know, it must be something different. I mean, when it says the prodigal came to his senses and said, I will arise and go to my father, don't say, hmm, I wonder if there's some mystical meaning to that. No, it meant he got tired of being in the pig pen. He came to his senses. He got up, brushed himself off, and started walking toward home. That's what it means. Just let the common sense Makes sense in what it says. Exegesis. Exegesis. The word means to lead out or to draw out. To lead out or to draw out. Now, we'll see a different word in a minute that means to lead in or to draw in or read in. But exegesis means to determine the meaning of a text 
in its context. It is an understanding word. To, to lead out or to draw out is the objective. I'm trying to draw out what the Bible says and what it means. And so in exegesis, we always have to look at context. A parable, for instance, is an illustration. You don't try to make it say more than it says and you don't overwork it. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning and application. I'm not going to read you all of that about exegesis and metaphors and everything else because I'll lose, I'll lose you. Let's go to the next word, exposition. Exposition. That's the communication of what you've learned in exegesis. So if you're a Bible study teacher and you exegete a passage and you study a passage, then you, you are expounding on that passage when you teach it. What God has shown you out of his word, you expound it and bring the meaning of the text, not only in its original setting, but in its current application and how it applies to us. So, so if you've got room somewhere in your notes, just write the word cookbook. And I'm going to tell you what these four words have to do. It's a simple homemaker's definition of all of this. Hermeneutics is the cookbook. Okay. Hermeneutics is the cookbook. Uh, We've got a lot of cookbooks at our house. We've got shelf after shelf of cookbook. We've got all these old Southern living. My, my mother had these Southern living hardback cookbooks and we've got every one of them. I mean, some of those recipes are older than Methuselah. I mean, they have just been around forever. But we've got all these cookbooks. But you can sit there and look at a cookbook all day long and never get anything out of it. You've got to open it. So exegesis is opening the cookbook and preparing everything to start the baking process. You're preparing to bake the cake. So I'm looking at the cake recipe. That's hermeneutics. I'm preparing and baking the cake. That's exegesis exposition i'm serving the cake and then add one more word edification i'm enjoying the cake that's just been served edification is enjoying what you've just eaten it it is it has fed you it has nourished you it has strengthened you Uh, and, and so there's there's the book the cookbook then you get all the ingredients together you pull it pull it out, what's needed. You pull all of those things out of the cabinet, get them together, put them on the counter, and then start putting it all back together. And that's exposition. And then that brings encouragement. Let's look at discovering and digging. There are several methods of Bible study. One is deductive Bible study, deductive Bible study. Now I would caution you about deductive Bible study because deductive kind of means what it implies. The reader is acting like a detective going after a passage with the premise of pulling out related ideas that they are interested in. Looking at a text, looking at a passage, say, I've got this topic, this idea that I want to study in this passage. The, The problem is if you don't study everything the Bible says about that topic, you can come up with false conclusions. So deductive can be dangerous because you don't come up with all the facts in deductive reasoning. Secondly is opinion. A lot of people study the Bible with an opinion Bible study method, which means uh, the, the word is eisegesis instead of exegesis. It's E-I, eisegesis, which means to lead in or to read into. In other words, you're reading into the scripture based on your 
philosophy, your worldview, your grid, your training, your background, your cultural environment, and you start reading your life and, and your culture and your preferences into the text, trying to gather information that will support what it is that you believe. And so it's introducing into the text some presuppositions and ignoring what's clearly revealed. Let, let me give you an example. Eisegesis has been used to defend a number of things that are not defendable. For instance, in England, in Europe, and in the United States, preachers and priests used eisegesis to defend slavery. They said the Bible teaches slavery. The Bible does not, the Bible acknowledges slavery. But if you look at what the Bible says about slavery, the, in the Bible, one of the things that Paul said and recognized was that in the church, there were slaves who had become saved and their masters were unbelievers. And they came in as new believers and might have found out that their slave was actually an elder and a leader in the church and the master needed to submit to the slave. Paul did not deal with the social issue of slavery. He told slaves and masters how they're supposed to to act toward one another. In other words, Paul's goal was not to, to have a revolution on the issue of slavery. Paul's goal was to get people's lives changed through Jesus Christ and getting people's lives th changed through Jesus Christ would change their view about slavery. And so eisegesis would impose some things onto the Bible to justify things that people do. People use that to justify heresy. Jim Jones used it to justify following him, and people drank the Kool-Aid and died by using eisegesis. And, that, and let me tell you why it's dangerous. Because people that don't know their Bibles don't know the difference between a man teaching his, his opinion and trying to make the Scripture say what he wants it to say and a man teaching the word of God because they're not students of the scripture and the check and the light doesn't go off in their heads. Then there's inductive Bible study, which is approaching the text in its context. And we've talked about that a lot. It's breaking down the parts and putting them back together again. Now, I, I know that there are people in this room and you can take something and you can break it apart and, and, and put it all back together again. You could take a car motor and break it apart and put it all back together again and it works. If I took a car motor apart, I'd call the junkyard and tell them to come haul my car off. You know, I had to take a stereo apart one time to make it fit in a shelf. I put it back together, and to my shock, it worked when I turned it on. But inductive Bible study is seeing what the text said to the original readers. Now, here's a key. This is very important. This kind of Bible study does not begin with looking at a commentary or a Bible dictionary. This is just you alone with the Scripture, seeing what God has to say to you. And before we're through in this message, I'm going to walk you through how to do that, how to get some basic things that you need to do, you alone with the Scripture, to see how to study it. Then you add a concordance and a Bible dictionary. Turn to Acts chapter 17. I want you to see a verse that really shows what a congregation and what a biblical student should do. Acts 17 and verse 11, talking about those who are in Thessalonica. Acts 17 and verse 11. 
By the way, G. Campbell Morgan said before he ever preached through a book of the Bible, he read it 30 times and never took a note. He just read it 30 times back to back to back over a course of a month to make sure that he understood the gist of that book. Just a thought. Acts 17, verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Look at what they did. They received the word. And man, we're ready to hear the word. We're ready to hear the Bible study. We're ready to hear the sermon. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You see what they did? They didn't just say, well, the preacher said it. That must mean it's true. They examined the scriptures to see whether those things were so. They studied the scriptures. Uh, I, I can remember when I first came here and uh, I was preaching through some, I, was, I think it was, well, the first book I preached through was Galatians. And uh, I remember preaching through Galatians and Roy Pippin brought his Galatians Wearsby commentary. And he would read his commentary in church before I preached on that passage. You know what he's doing? He's checking me out. Make sure I was on target. You know what? That didn't threaten me a bit. It didn't threaten me a bit. Because to be honest with you, after I've written my sermon, sometimes I go read Wearsby just to make sure I'm not off base. Because <laughs> I want to make sure I'm balanced in what I'm saying and, and how I'm looking at a passage of Scripture. So what does inductive Bible study do for you? Well, these all begin with an E. First of all, it will equip you. It will equip you. It's going to equip you to rightly and accurately handle the Word of God. Secondly, it will empower you to dig deeper. The deeper you dig, the deeper you can dig. It's going to empower you to dig deeper. It will enable you to stand strong in your faith. It will enable you to stand strong in your faith because you'll know what God's Word says. You won't be controlled by your whims and by your emotions and by the opinions of others, you'll know what God says. Number four, it will encourage you to love God more because you'll see that God has spoken and he has not stuttered. God has a word for you. It, it will encourage you and it will help you to embrace who you are in Christ. One of the reasons why we have so many people in the church that have inferiority complexes is they don't realize all that Christ has done for them. And all that God has saved them to be. And if you dig in the word and you start seeing who you are in Christ. In fact, if you just want to do a little study of underlining in your Bible. Start in the epistles and go all the way through. And underline every time you see the phrase in Christ, by Christ, or for Christ. You'll find about 280 times. That's telling you who you are. Not who your mama said you were, not who your coach said you were. That's telling you who you are because of your position in Jesus Christ. And it should elevate the fact in your mind that, man, God has done something special in me and for me. So how do we discover the truth? Three keys. Three keys. Number one, observation. Observation. It's the basis for accurate interpretation and application. It means what does the text say? What does it say? These three keys, any passage that you study, you do these three. And by the way, we'll talk about this a little more, but if you do good observation, it will answer 75% of your interpretation questions. 75% of the interpretation issues would be answered by good observation. So what does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? All right, I know what it says. What does it mean? Application. 
What does it mean to me personally? What does it mean to me personally? In other words, I'm not just reading the Bible, uh, that word I've hid in my heart that I might impress my friends. Uh, I'm reading the Bible because it needs to change me, that I might not sin against God. So when I read something, God's telling me something he wants me to do as a result of what I've just read. Lord, speak to me. I'm listening to what you have to say to me. So observation is a journey. First of all, to know the purpose of the book. So now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to see Luke's purpose for writing the gospel. It's all there in the first four verses. The purpose of the book. Remember, we looked at Jude in the last message, and he said, I meant to write to you about the great salvation, but now I need to write to you about people that have come in and turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Jude said, I had a plan to write a book about this, but when I heard what was going on in the church, I began to write about this subject, about the great salvation and the the abuse of the grace of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just look at it, and then let's walk through it just for a moment. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So in verses 1 and 2, Luke explains why he's writing this. Now, look at what he's doing. He he has taken great effort. He's taken an undertaking to compile this. Luke was a doctor. He would have been someone attuned to details. Uh, he wasn't a fisherman. You know, how big was a fish? About, uh, th- about, about that big. He, he went and examined the details. He read all the reports. He talked to all the, all the eyewitnesses. He compared the stories. He, he dug deep. And so he's explaining why he writes it. Verse 3, he tells us who he's writing it to. Now, we get to read it, but he's writing it to Theophilus. Lover of God is what his name means. Theo, God. The base of the word phileo, love, he is a lover of God. So he's writing to a man who has a love for God, and he's saying, you love God, but I want you to help you to understand the things that you have heard and why they were taught to you. So then in verse 4, he gives us the reason, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now that word taught is a word that we don't use much in a Baptist church, But the English word is the basis from which we get the word catechism. It it means to instruct in the basis of the faith. To instruct in the basis of the faith. So he says, you've been instructed and I want to instruct you further in the basis of the faith. In the word that has been handed down to us from the beginning, from eyewitnesses and from servants of the word. Now I'm going to teach you all of these things in an accurate an orderly manner. Have you ever heard somebody tell a story and they start saying, well, wait wait a minute, I need need to go back a few days before I tell you that. And they're just kind of bouncing around and you're trying to keep up with the story. Luke says, I'm going to tell you how it was from the beginning all the way to the end. So let me just give you a little background to whet your appetite about Luke. The key verse in Luke 
If you were to look at Luke and say, I need to find the key verse in this book. The key verse in the gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's the key verse. Now there's another key verse. And that's chapter 2 and verse 10. Good tidings of great joy shall be to all people. That's the announcement that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So they're tied together. By the way, Luke deals more with outcasts, with women, and with children than all the other gospel writers combined. Luke was a whosoever will kind of a guy. He was a, the gospel is for everybody in every walk of life, and they need to learn this truth, and they need to know this truth. The key chapter, anybody want to guess what the key chapter is in Luke? Luke 15. The parable of the lost son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. Now, doesn't that make sense when you realize that the key verse is God came to seek and save that which was lost. And so what was lost? He says a son was lost, a sheep was lost, a coin was lost, and the endeavor that was taken to redeem and retrieve those things which had been lost. He's telling the story of how Jesus Christ came to find the lost. So, the key chapter is Luke 15. There's some key words. Obviously, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are key words. But let me give you a few key words in the Gospel of Luke. The word seek is found seven times in the Gospel of Luke. The word son of man, which was Jesus' favorite name for himself, is found 26 times. And he deals a lot with discipleship. Luke chapter 9 and Luke 14 are strong on discipleship. And the word disciple or disciples is found 35 times. Luke's goal was not just to see people saved, but that they would become disciples. And so Luke 14 is pivotal when he says that you need to weigh the cost about how much you love God and a king goes out to war and a builder goes out to build. They count the cost. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to get casual followers and casual attenders, Jesus came to find and make disciples. And so he's dealing with this key word of disciples. You see, if you remove the word disciple, it changes the whole meaning of the book. That's why words matter. And so let me give you some other observations about Luke. And these are pretty fascinating when you think about the gospel of Luke. 16 of the 26 parables of Jesus are found only in the gospel of Luke. So if you're going to do a study of the parables of Jesus, you've got to realize out of the 26 that he told, 16 of them are only found in one gospel. Now Luke has examined and interviewed the people who heard these, the eyewitnesses who heard these accounts. 586 verses out of the 1,151 contain the spoken words of Jesus. That means that 50% of what Jesus said that is recorded is recorded in the book of Luke. Now, it may be repeated in Matthew or Mark or John, but 50% of everything that is recorded that Jesus said, and we only have about eight days, 18 days or so. I, I, I forgot the number right off the top of my head. I'll, I'll have it next week. 
We only have so many recorded days out of the three and a half year ministry of Jesus on earth. But of all he said that is recorded, 50% of it is in the gospel of Luke. Luke quotes the Old Testament 25 times, quotes it directly 25 times, and alludes to it 42 times. So Luke goes all the way back to the Old Testament scriptures and he looks at how it, Jesus is the fulfillment of this and he traces it from the beginning. The story of Christ all the way through. And so here's what Luke does. First of all, Luke presents the Savior. He's the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. Not only does Luke present the Savior, but he presents salvation to seek and save. And not only does Luke present the Savior and does Luke present salvation, but he presents the terms of discipleship. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14 being the primary chapters where he deals with these terms of discipleship. So, here's what we need to know. We need to know the six W's. Some people call this the five W's and the one H. Uh, I'll go with the six W's. I think Howard Hendricks uses the six W's. These are the things that nobody ever told me how to do. I just kind of did it by hope until somebody actually sat down and taught me. So there are are six words that begin with W. First of all, when you're looking at a passage of Scripture, when you open up a passage of Scripture, the first question you want to ask is who? It's a simple question. Who are the characters? Who's involved? Who's the recipient? Who's it written to? Is there a crowd involved? Are people directly involved? Who's uh, the particular person that's being addressed? You know, is Paul talking to a person or is he just talking to the church in general? Is, is Luke, what did do, who was Luke writing to? Theopolis. It's very clear who he was writing to. Sometimes you see who is to the churches of Galatia. Not just one church, but every church in the, in the region. That means that, that letter was a circular letter. It went around and was read from church to church to church to the seven churches in Asia Minor, the book of Revelation, which means that all the churches, although it was to the church at Laodicea, to the church at Ephesus, all the churches would have seen those letters because they would have been passed around from church to church to church so that everybody could hear what God said. So, who's involved? Second word, what? What? And this is where you're just sitting down with your Bible with your computer or with a, with a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper, and you're just asking some questions, not looking at any commentaries. You're just asking questions that the text will show you. You've prayed and asked God to show you how to observe things in his word. You ask a who question, then you ask a what question. Is there a major idea? Is there a major doctrine taught? Is there a major word in this verse like redemption or justification or sanctification? Say, I don't know what those words mean. Just go ahead and write it down. Write down, okay, he said that we have been redeemed by precious blood. I need to figure out what the word redeem means. That's why you get a Bible dictionary. You don't go look at it now. You're just observing. You're just writing down what are the major words, the major thoughts. What do they say? What's said about them? Are there theological terms? Are there figures of speech? What's the atmosphere? What's the atmosphere? Is it at night? Is it during the day? 
Uh, is it in a house? Where is it? We'll talk about that in a little bit more. There's another uh, what here. What cultural references are there? Is there a reference to anything that's culture? Uh, what, what kind of book is it? Is this a historical book? Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it a, is it a narrative? Uh, what, what kind of book is it? All right, third word, when. When was it written? When was it written? Is it Old Testament? Is it pre-prophets? Is it during the time of the kings? Is it during the time of the divided kingdom? Have, has Israel and Judah now been divided? Uh, is it during the time of captivity? Uh, did it happen with a particular person in a particular nation with a particular group? These are important. When? Isaiah's vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was close to that king. In the year that he died, I saw the Lord. Something triggered something in Isaiah that, that he dated. He didn't just say, you know, I was walking down the road one day and I saw the Lord. He said it was in the year that King Uzziah died. So you can go date when that was that Isaiah saw the Lord, the year that Uzziah died. Okay, so you, yes, when did it happen? Uh, at what point? Is it in the life of Israel or is it in the life of the church? Is it past, is it present, or is it future? Is it something that will come to be or has already come to be? So you're just asking when questions. Where? Where did it happen? Where was it said? Was it in a building? Was it in a home? Was Jesus, uh, you know, where did it happen? When Jesus said uh, about Mary... He says, she's chosen the best part. Where did he say that? He said it in her home, in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. As Martha was in the kitchen cooking and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said to her, what she has has chosen and what she has done will not be taken away from her. And when he said Mary has chosen the best part, when you start studying that word, you realize that that's a culinary term. Ladies, explain it to your husband. It's a kitchen term. He said, Mary has chosen the best cut of meat. The best cut of meat. She has chosen the very best thing that she could have. You've been busy in the kitchen, Martha. And that's why he says to Martha, 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 why are you so worried, uptight about so many things? Mary has chosen the best part. Where did it happen? It happened in their home. Did it happen in a city? Or is there a landmark by, did it happen by Jacob's well? Did it, you know, where was Joshua? Joshua was out walking around Jericho, looking and examining to try to find out what was going on and how he was going to capture Jericho. And it was outside the walls of Jericho that the captain of the Lord of hosts appeared to Joshua. It's significant. It didn't happen 10 years before when he was walking around in the wilderness and could see Jericho off in the distance. It happened on the verge of him being able to take and conquer Jericho. Is it in an agricultural setting? Is it by a river? Well, that's obvious in some places. You know, Jesus came to John to be baptized. It must have been by a river. Didn't have a baptistry back then. Was it on a mountain? Was it in a prison? Paul wrote his letters, most of his letters from prison. I'm convinced that one reason that Paul was in prison because Paul wouldn't slow down enough in his missions and evangelism to sit down and write anything. So God had to put him in prison to make him sit down and write. Why? Number five. Why was it written? Why was it written? What? And there you're trying to find the purpose of the book. Luke, it's very obvious. Sometimes... It's not as obvious. And then the last one, wherefore or how. Number six can be wherefore. It could be 
how? That's the so what question. So now that I know who, what, when, where, and why, so what? What does that mean? And the reason wherefore is last is because that makes you make your experiences and your interpretation subordinate to what the scriptures have said. So the wherefore question is the last question. And the wherefore question is always preceded by what do I need to obey? Because the bottom line of Bible study is obedience. So what is it that I am supposed to obey out of studying this passage of Scripture? So let me give you uh, five statements of why this study is important. Number one, you study the Bible to be wise. You believe it to be safe. And you practice it to be holy. You study the Bible to be wise. You believe it to be safe. It's a safe bet to go with God's word. You believe it to be safe and you practice it to be holy. Second one is a big one for me. When the Bible is on the shelf, the church will soon follow. When the Bible is on the shelf, the church will soon follow. I preached in a church in southwest Georgia back in the early 90s. And uh, I said, open your Bibles. And I noticed I didn't hear what I hear when I'm at Sherwood. When I'm at Sherwood, I hear people, you know, they're, you hear that. By the way, that's, that's music to a preacher's ear and it's also music to God's ears. That's music to God's ears too. And I didn't hear anybody opening their Bible. And I knew I was in trouble because, if, I mean, if you don't hear anybody opening their Bible, and they all just sat there, just kind of sat there. And this guy came up to me after it was over, and he said, uh, he said, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? I said, yeah. I was preaching on uh, Matthew uh, 13 on the sower, the seed, and the soil. And I said, yes, I do. He said, you know, that's just old thinking. He said, we're all beyond that now. And I thought, as quick as I can, I'm getting the dust off my feet. And I'm going to go because I've already cast more pearl before swine than I care to. So I, I left and I have not gone back, nor have they asked me, by the way. Uh, but I'll tell you, when the Bible's on the shelf, the church follows. Because there's nothing more dangerous than a church that doesn't understand its commission and its calling before God. And the only way we understand that is by being people of the book because the book will not let us rest on our deeds and our accomplishments. It constantly calls us to move forward. Number three, it will cause you to apply yourself to the whole text and the whole text to you. It will cause you to apply yourself to the whole text and the whole text to you. In other words, you won't cherry pick trying to figure out what you want to obey and what you don't want to obey. Number four, it's a big one. If you read on the surface, you live on the surface. You understand that? So you, you buy that? If you read on the surface, you live on the surface. If you only read the things that you want to read and don't wrestle with the things that you don't, want to read or you're afraid you won't understand 
The Bible is not a scary book. It's only scary if you're surface and you're reading of it. And you may read it 50 times before the light bulb comes on. Just keep reading it. Just keep reading it. Because if you read on the surface, you live on the surface. And God wants us to go deep with him. And then the last one. This is an old saying. The Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person that's not. The Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person that's not. Every now and then when I'm uh, preaching a funeral, I will uh, ask if I can use the person's Bible. And sometimes they have a newer Bible that doesn't have as much in it, but sometimes I get one of these Bibles that's been used for years and years and years, and there's so many notes written in it and so many things. I have actually taken members of this church Bible and copied pages out of it before I've given it back because of the notes that they had written in the margins of their Bible because I knew that they had studied and they had listened. They took notes. They paid attention. And so I've got some of those pages in my files with those passages because they, God may have taught them something I need to learn. And so I, I just have them, and I, I put them in there. If the Bible's falling apart, the person's probably not. Now, you may have a new Bible. I've got more Bibles than I need, and I know that. I've got uh, New Testament. New Testament was Psalms. I've got, uh, I've got about 18 translations. Uh, I've got one Bible that is bigger than a Sears Roebuck catalog that has 26 translations in it. Uh, but uh, find one that you're familiar with and read it and get to know it and let it get to know you. We don't worship the Bible, but we sure learn how to worship the God who wrote it when we study it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.